I want to pray for many things. Uh, several of you conspired to uh, make sure that the national flower of the Ukraine would be here before us. So um, it's not in season here, but boy, is it in season. So let's pray for a lot of things, including the things that you just heard. So would you, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we have come uh, to recover something that perhaps this week taken, has taken from us, which we perhaps abated and abetted. It's, uh, it's pilfering. We've come to, to glory again, and, and something um, that we hold to is true, but also beautiful and compelling and humbling and renewing. And so we, we ask that you would do that. We ask that you would help us to remember. We, we ask on behalf of those also who, who look at you with a certain suspicion and um, would come to see you as one who is worthy of, uh, of even more. Um. Father, at the same time, we have come to harass you, um, to ask many things of you. So if you wouldn't mind, would you hear our prayers? We pray that you would bring wars to cease. We know that where people are, wars erupt. Even so, we ask that you would bring it to an end. For those who have been displaced, for those who have already lost much, for the families of those who've, people who have given up their lives or who've had them taken from them forcibly, we ask your mercy. We ask that wisdom and long-sightedness and love would prevail. But we ask that wars would cease. And we ask on their behalf. And we ask if they would be, may, we may be of assistance to them that you would show us how. At the same time, we pray for things just as far flung. We, we pray for Christina and Edward Isingoma. We pray for Kamuli House. We pray for these two young ladies who have come to see you as beautiful and who have, who have yielded unto your calling. And we ask that for all the struggles ahead about what it means to walk by faith, that you would surround them and with your spirit remind them and indwell them with hope that on the days where they have a hard time believing it, where they think it's all absurd, uh, that you would, you would comfort them and remind them that they belong to you even if, even if it doesn't make any sense. We pray for Uganda, we pray for Honduras and Honduras Fountain of Life that you would continue to bless Pastor Yubani and all of those, the, the horde of holy people that want to do right by you in that place. We pray the same for all of those who serve in far-flung places that are far from here, that you would uphold them with hope and provision and clarity of vision as to what it means to be faithful and present to wherever they are. Father, we pray for any number of ways in which we seek to be for your world around here, for Kairos, for Black Mountain, Black Mountain Children's Home, for, for the least of these, for the storehouse, for Feed the Need, for ABCCM, all of those organizations that would seek to give a face to your name, in this place. 
And we, Father, we pray for this, your family. We know that word is sometimes of great hope for many and other times great fraught with great uh, despair. Regardless, we pray for this family that you would help us to grow in the ways that matter, that you would bind us together, that you would both afflict us where we are in need of affliction and comfort us when we are in need of comfort so that we might be true to you. Oh, Father, we know we are full of hypocrites, starting with me. And we pray that you would continue to refine us in spite of ourselves so that we might learn what it means to be present wherever we find ourselves. And now we ask that you would help us to hear, to receive, to sift through what is ridiculous and instead find what is pure and lasting in what the words that we're about to hear. And we ask that you would teach us to pray. As your son taught us to pray when he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. His name is George Monroe. He's played by Kevin Kline. And uh, his wife has left him. His son is estranged from him. His job has just been taken from him, and, and that's not even the worst news he's gotten. It so happens, though, that he inherited a, a place on the beach um, that has come to ruin through neglect. It's dilapidated. It's entirely uninhabitable, but it's still his. And in the midst of his world being turned upside down, in which everything that was solid is now crumbling Literally and metaphorically, he, he takes it upon himself to look at that shack and say, something must change. And so he wants to tear it down to the studs and build it again. Such that the shack is more than just a shack. It's a metaphor for something else. And I want to show you a moment from early in that film called Life as a House, in which George goes to his estranged son with a certain plea. I don't want you smaller. I want you to be happy. You're not. Not here with me, not home with your mother, not alone, not anywhere. You're what I was most of my life, Sam. I see it in your eyes, in your sleep, in your answer to everything. You're barely alive. I'm not even listening. You know the great thing, though? that change can be so constant that you don't even feel the difference until there is one. It can be so slow that you don't know that your life is better or worse until it is. Or it can just blow you away, make you something different in an instant. It happened to me. Build this house with me.
Saul has to come down before we can start again. Knock it down. not about a house. It's about a life. It's about a life that is in ruin. It's about a life that's in need of being torn down to the studs. It's about a remodel. But there is no remodel without a really, just call it devastating act of teardown. The reason that movie is called Life is a House is because that's what it is. His life is a house, and that house needs to be rebuilt. Well, that's, the house is more than a house. The house is a life. Well, that's, that's the plot of our, of our text this morning. Life is a house. But life is a house of worship. Your house is an individual, but our house as a church, as a family, our house is a house of worship. And Jesus, in his most ferocious moment in the entirety of his recorded ministry, has everything to do with him coming to the house of worship and bringing a sledgehammer. You know, at times he'll, he'll bring a basin and a towel and wash the, feet of Je- wash the feet of Peter. Today is when Jesus brings a pressure washer. And he's going to do his most demonstrable act we have seen in the entirety of his work. And I think what he's going to say in that moment is going to have resonance with us because if you believe that your life is a house and not just a house in which you find refuge and strength and a place of stability in which you might kind of ground yourself in reality, if you think of your house, your life is a house of worship, then what Jesus is going to say about the temple there is going to have something to say to us. And we're going to look at this passage through three questions. What is Jesus out to condemn? But secondly, what is Jesus out to commend, even as he is condemning? But most importantly, even if what he's out to condemn and to commend, the question is, how, how does he compel us to believe that and to act in that, such that our, both our individual lives and our corporate lives recover what it means to be a house of worship? I know that's really abstract. Let's see if we can add some concreteness to it. We're in Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 11. I wonder if you might stand as we hear. Our central text for today is found in Mark 11, 11 through 25. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, 
May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you've been with us and you've been listening to Mark, then what happens in verse 11 is really kind of weird, given the reading. Because usually it's so fast-paced, something happens. There's talking, there's moving, there's healing, whatever it might be. But verse 11, here's Jesus. It's at night. They've just arrived. He's already done his triumphal entry. He's come in on, a, on the foal of a donkey, and to great fanfare, and to great suspicion by the religious establishment. And, you know, it's woohoo, palm leaves and all that. And that's coming, Palm Sunday. So we're kind of getting out of order here. But it's night. And... Here's Jesus in verse 11, and it says he, he, he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, and it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Mark never slows down the tape. But here in this moment, in verse 11, Jesus is, is portrayed as walking through the temple courts and taking it all in and saying nothing. We don't even know what he's thinking, but he's having this little interior moment. What is up? Why is Mark preserving this little moment in which nothing happens? Because of what happens the next day. Because if you think that's odd, buckle up. Because verse 12 and following, oh my. He's in Bethany. It's out on the east side of Jerusalem. They're getting up. They're heading into Jerusalem. And, you know, it's breakfast. We're hungry. So is Jesus. And... He's got to fill his hunger, right? Anybody been hungry? Jesus knows his edibles, his edible plants, sorry. Um, And he sees a fig tree, and he approaches the fig tree. Now, it's spring, so I had to to tap into my horticultural experts this week, but 
if it's in springtime and a fig tree is in leaf, that's when we know what it is because there are leaves. However, it's this bizarre thing. Jesus walks up to it. He, he surveys it. We know he's hungry. He sees leaves and then he, he, he curses it. He says, may you never bear fruit again. And we're all thinking, Jesus, why are you angry? It, it, Mark even says, it's not the season for figs. Why are you angry at a tree in which there are no figs if it's not the season for figs? If you go to the diner at 2 a.m. and it's closed, you don't throw through a rock through a window. It's not supposed to be open. Your anger is misplaced. So what is Jesus, what is, why would he place a curse upon a fig tree in which no figs were ever even expected? Here's, here's the horticultural part. The way figs work, the way fig trees work, my, when my father died, my, my stepbrother gave us a fig tree. And, and I, went, I went to Google Maps this week, and I looked at the aerial photo of my former home in Texas. You can still see it. It's still sprawling. It's huge. That's what fig trees do. They can't stop. Why is Jesus cursing a tree that it might never, ever grow again? If there are leaves with a fig tree, that usually means there are also buds. Buds usually show leaves then, and then later in the fall or late, late summer, then the, then the figs really happen. Jesus finds not even buds. When you're hungry enough, you'll eat anything. And whereas buds are not exactly the most edible thing that you might eat, at least it's something. But Jesus doesn't even find buds. And so he curses that tree. May you never bear fruit again. Why, is he angry? No, he's not angry at the tree. This is a little bit of foreshadowing. If you were with us a few weeks ago, Jesus comes to a blind man who cannot see, obviously, and he, heal, he, he, he puts his hands on his eyes, and he, and he says, what do you see? And he goes, I, I, see, uh, I see men, they're like trees walking. In other words, not really good. I'm a little still, as, a little astigmatism, help me out. And so Jesus does it again, right? And then he can see perfectly. What's that about? Was Jesus off that day? Was he hungry? Was he tired? No, it was a metaphor for what was about to occur in the rest of the passage. He was there to say, here's the foreshadowing. All of you need to see more clearly. I'm going to help, Jesus says. It's the same thing. The curse of the fig tree was not about the fig tree. It was about what comes after. It comes to the temple. Jesus shows up in the temple, and there, what does he see? Nothing that the temple should be. Something's amiss. In Hamlet, when the Montagues and the Capulets are fighting, swordplay, until Mercutio, the wiseacre, gets accidentally stabbed, and, and, and he says to all of you, a pox upon both of your houses, a plague. That's foreshadowing. Because surely if you know how Hamlet ends, both Montagues and the Capulets, both the houses have a plague descend upon them. What Jesus does about the fig tree is about what he's about to declare in the temple. He shows, he sees, and what he saw in miniature there at night, on the night before, he now sees on display, and what he sees is what the temple should not be. Everything that it was supposed to be, it wasn't. What is the temple for? It's for worship. And in Old Testament worship, you brought sacrifices, you brought offerings, and many times, if you were coming from out of town, you would make purchases of sacrificial animals in order to make those offerings. 
So there was a commercial aspect to being able to prepare you for worship. That was one thing. But what had happened is that commerce had sort of encroached upon the whole life of worship within the temple. It had become the thing. It had become to drown out everything else. To the point in which those who were now selling and those who were exchanging money for those who had foreign currency were now sort of gouging those who had come to buy an honest sacrificial animal. And what had happened? Commerce had become king. Commerce had become to displace the very thing for which it was intended. Commerce, which is supposed to have been a means to an end, had become an end in itself. And commerce wasn't the only problem that Jesus had. Now convenience had also risen to the fore. People needed to get some places. They had to get on the other side of town. And usually the temple, which was sort of the center of town, it was in the way. So what do we make the temple courts to be? A cut through. And Jesus stands in their way. Don't walk through here. You don't understand what this place is for if you're using it as a cut through. Convenience, commerce, these are the two things that had become king in the temple. And it is Jesus' most ferocious moment. He upends the temple tables where people are exchanging money. He's, he's telling those that are selling animals, get out of here. You have missed the point. This is a colossal example of losing the plot. And he stands in the way of anybody that's using this as the cut through. Why is he so serious? Why is he so upset? At risk of trivializing the moment, anybody ever see that movie by Pixar called Up? You know, Carl Friedrichsen, a good, you know, good, good European hearty individual. He's lost his wife. All he has left is his house, and the house stands in the middle of a, of a metro, metropolis that's got a big skyscrapers everywhere, and obviously commerce and convenience have come to conspire to get him to take his house away but he, they can't do it they have no pretext it's his house it's his deed they can't move him until he gets ornery and angry with one of the workmen and punches the mailbox in the in the guy's hand and in his face and then all of a sudden boom the authorities descend he loses his house the deed to it in that moment his house was his sacred place and now convenience and commerce had come to conspire to want to take it from him and he's angry you would be too. Jesus is angered not because it's real estate, not because he has a deed to it, but because his father's name is being disparaged, demeaned, defamed, profaned by the way in which things have come to take more importance. And so he says in verse 17, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? What is his issue? It's twofold. One, the worship of God had become displaced by things not worthy of his name. What had been used as a service had now become a center. And he is disturbed by the way in which commerce and convenience have, have set aside, have become a substitute for what the temple was for, for worship, for centering, for that place of, of clarity and conviction that holds all things together. 
Is Jesus calling out commerce and convenience in and of itself? Is there anything wrong with commerce? No. Buying and selling, it's, it's, that's usually a means by which people are mutual of, help, of mutual help to one another. Commerce isn't the problem. Convenience, if you can find a way to do something quicker to save you time to do other things that are more important, fantastic. Convenience is great. The problem is those things have displaced the main thing. They have come to be elevated to a place such that now they are everything. They are something, but now they have become everything. And, and if I might bring it now closer to our home here, what, 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 is, the, what is the relevance for Jesus' anger about worship being displaced? What does that have to do with you? Look, um, commerce and convenience in your life have maybe have become so important you didn't even aware of it it's like last week you know we you don't realize that you're swimming in water you're just sort of insensible to the ways in which you have come to commit yourself to commercial interests and convenience you just don't know it until somebody says do you realize how central this has become the ways in which we elevate something to become anything as a substitute for the worship of god is there anything that you seek out that may never come to you? How, what will you conclude? If there is anything that you get, that you have wanted, but that is taken from you forever, oh look, there'll be grief. There'll be profound disappointment. If you're not affected by it deeply, then it really was of no value to you. But if those things are the only things that will ever make you happy, it is possible that those things have come to displace the main thing. Kids, there's all sorts of things that you like to do and think about that make you happy, and that's cool. Me too. Show me your list, and I'll learn a lot about you. But it's possible along the way that you might accidentally start to think that you will never be happy unless this thing becomes true of you. And if you start to think that, then there's your little warning sign, big flash, notification that just came in. That you have come to make something that was important to you more important to you than the one who should be the most important to you. That's what's happening in the temple. Good things have become the best things and the most important thing has been put like in a closet. And Jesus is right to be scandalized by that. When anything has come to consume us such that it displaces even our worship of him, he must act to condemn that. Because when we let that happen, we are building our house in a place that will never survive a real storm. The other thing that he condemns, the little tagline there, you might miss it. It goes by pretty quick. You, you, is it not written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? Everybody's invited. God calls Israel, births Israel, grows Israel, protects Israel, you know, wrestles, wrings his hands over Israel, allows them to be enslaved for 400 years, rescues them, builds another house, sends them into exile. So it, it's a really a difficult relationship. But he still has his eye on the Gentiles from the beginning. Such that in the temple courts, there was a place for Gentiles to be welcomed in, to do what Israel does, to pray. 
But once again, commerce and convenience had become so big, it had kind of creeped over into the court of the Gentiles, such that if you're a Gentile and you walk in there and you come in to pray, it's like everybody's screaming. It's like, you know, Coachella is in the middle of the temple courts. Nobody's getting, what is Coachella? Nobody is getting any prayer done. And it's a struggle, and Jesus is scandalized by that. This is their place. How dare you? What does that have to do with any of us? Uh, l- let, me, let me reach for something here. If you believe in Jesus, then you have a sense of identity in him. You identify with him. And as you go along in your own little pilgrimage, along the way, certain priorities that you feel like are related to what it means to have faith in Jesus, you kind of, yeah, nod your head. I'm in. I'm for that. Yeah. But what happens is a lot of times, and there's plenty of examples throughout history in which certain priorities become such a priority to you, such that other priorities that may have as much a connection to what it means to follow Jesus, they kind of like, nah, somebody else's problem. Such that, as you've heard other people say, just to use an example here, there ends up becoming a red state theology and a blue state theology. There are certain priorities that these folks kind of harp on all the time, but not those. And there are some priorities over here that these folks harp on, but not those. And never the twain shall meet. So the phenomenon goes. And the problem is, when you start to say, these things are of him, but those things not so much. Or if you're over here saying, these things are of him, but those things not so much, then anybody that's just sort of walking in here just sort of like doesn't know anything, and they hear about this fight over these priorities, no, these priorities, they're kind of like, I don't know what to do. This is not my family. I'm out. Those who are unfamiliar except in the smallest way, start to get caught in the crossfire of what these things matter. No, these things matter. And they're kind of like, ah, mm. this is just one big clamor. I don't get it. How dare we? It happens. We're all susceptible to it. And Jesus is right to call it out. Now look, you might think, wow, why is he so angry? Let me, let me mention something from a, a, a theologian I've referenced before. His name is F.D. Bruner. He said this, um, When a church exists for comfort to the exclusion of challenge, for grace and not ever for judgment, she becomes a hideout for thieves rather than a house of God. In other words, if Jesus can never challenge us, if he can never get in our face and get up in our business and look at us intently, then I think maybe our faith rests on a false comfort. We all have to ask ourselves, am I getting in the way of somebody else knowing him? We all have to ask ourselves, look, is there something that I am so committed to that maybe Jesus wouldn't maybe necessarily flip the tables uh, of whatever my thing is that's on my table? Maybe he wouldn't do that, but maybe he would look at us intently and go, what are you doing? If he never challenges us, um, we perhaps misunderstand what it means to find our comfort in him too. That's what he condemns. But he does not only condemn. He is also out to commend something. I want to I show you just 45 more seconds of that movie, Life is a House. Because I think in that moment, you will see imagery that helps us get home here. Not only has he torn it down, now what's he going to do to build it back up? Here we go. Okay. 
all goes really fast, but the imagery is really important. And it's very subtle there at the end. The house needed a new foundation. It brought a community together. Those estrangements that had been long-seated, long, deep-seated, had begun to be healed. And by the end of it, what that house had become, had become a place in which to find the peace enough to dance. Praise him with tambourine and dance, the psalmist says. David, when the ark is brought forward, what does he do? He dances before it. There is a peace in you that allows you to dance. And with that foundation and that community that leads to this kind of peace that leads you to dance, I think is where Jesus is out to rebuild it. We've heard the teardown, what he's tearing it down to the studs for. What's he out to reduce it? What's he out to bring back forward? What's, what's this new house of worship that he's out to prepare for us? If, if you go out and, and see Ms. Cayuta's work again, I, go, go find the one that says, um, it, it's entitled, uh, Looking for a Way Out. And I would love for her to be here that I might hear from her an explanation of what's going on in that because I'll, I'll stare at it again to figure it out. But, but when you see the roots of the tree that's at the top of the painting, Peter, the next morning, after Jesus has had his catharsis in the temple, they're walking back from Bethany to Jerusalem again, and they're walking by that tree that he curses, and sure enough, look, the roots of the tree have withered that doesn't usually happen overnight. I don't know much about gardening, but I know it doesn't wither like that that quickly. Not an established tree. But it's happened. And what Jesus has done by way of object lesson is that the roots of the tree have withered in the same way that the roots of Israel's worship have withered. So what must replace it? What new foundation must be laid? It's not complicated. Jesus says... Here's the foundation. Have faith in God. Oh, I never would have thought of that. What? Have faith in God. What, what does he mean? That whole talk about if you believe that this mountain will be taken up and cast into the sea, it's, it's a really um, kind of esoteric phrase he's out there. And in, in, in my study of it, I think the one that makes the most sense is the reason we read Isaiah 2 at the beginning of our worship is because the temple was usually associated with a mountain. This sturdy thing that would never be moved. What Jesus did in the temple, look, temple's huge. For him to turn over a few tables and, and yell out a little of a bellow, there was no sense, no illusion in his mind that everything was going to come to a stop. The next day, everything would be doing it just like they were. Jesus was making a symbolic gesture that this house needs to be torn down and rebuilt, but he was also making a prophetic gesture because within 40 years, that temple would be reduced to rubble. Rome would have it destroyed, burned to the ground. And so the mountain the mountain that will never be moved will be brought as if into the bottom of the sea, reduced to rubble. What shall replace it? Faith in God. In what sense? Just two. One that has to do with asking and believing in the infinite possibility of God. Nobody could imagine the temple being torn down and reduced to rubble. It happened. Nobody could have imagined it, but it happened. 
And Jesus said it was going to happen. Well, if that's possible, what else is possible? And the way you and I have faith in God in believing in the infinite possibility of something is to start asking for it. And so he says there, whatever you ask and believe that it will happen, you will receive it. And as soon as you and I hear that, we think, where's the footnote? <laughs> um, where, where's the little parenthesis that Jesus where, where, that says he didn't really mean that, he just meant it in a metaphorical way. It's just a, such a sweeping promise. And I would say the lion's share of those of you in this room read that and think, <laughs> what do I do with that? There's plenty of things I've prayed for that remain to this day unanswered insofar as I understand the way God works. So what is he getting at? And believe me, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm with you. I feel your pain. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful essay that's in your resource doc this week on the sermon page. I commend it to every single one of you. It's called The Efficacy of Prayer. And before you and I struggle with it, he struggled with it too. And it didn't start with him struggling with it. And he opens that essay by telling a story about his barber. One day, C.S. Lewis was thinking about getting a haircut. And he kind of went back and forth, and he thought, eh, nah. And then kind of at the last minute, he felt, oh, okay, I'll go. And he shows up at the barber shop, and as soon as the barber sees him, his eyes go wide. And C.S. Lewis said, wow, you're happy to see me. What's the deal? And he goes, I prayed that you would come here today. Now, C.S. Lewis is honest enough to say, you know what? There are multiple explanations for that. It could have been just sheer random chance. Could have been telepathy. Who knows? Are you sure it's not? Or it could have been a prompting. But the question about whether prayer is efficacious, whether it actually does what Jesus seems to suggest that it will, that's not a scientific question. You can't do a randomized control trial on prayer, or at least you shouldn't. It doesn't work that way. It's not like uh, magic. But, but C.S. Lewis would argue that the way you come to believe that prayer matters and that he does answer prayers is that you come to know God more. The more you come to know him, the more you become aware of what kind of God would answer those prayers. And, and that may not settle all your questions, so let me just reduce it to what C.S. Lewis says there in the essay. He says this, Our assurance about prayer, that is, is quite different in kind from scientific knowledge. It's born out of our personal relation to the other parties, not from knowing things about them, but from knowing them. Those who best know a man best know whether when he did what they asked, he did it because they asked. I think those who best know God will best know whether he sent me to the barber shop because the barber prayed. In other words, the way we come to know whether prayer has any point is that we come to know the one who makes promises about prayer. Look, I won't lie to you. When I prepared this text 10 days ago, I thought, I have no idea what to tell them. Father, help me out. And then as I'm cleaning up my office this week, there's a hard copy of this essay, which helped a lot of things sort of fall into place. Thanks. It's small. Why not? Have faith in God means asking for impossible things. It's why we gather over there at 945 on Sundays to ask for many things and also the things that are like cathedral prayers. There is no cathedral of any note that was ever finished in the lifespan of the one who was the architect. 
They always had their hope set on something that would outlast them. I think that's a version of what it means to pray. And that's what we try to do as often as we can. That's, the other, that's one part of having faith in God. The other thing is this. Seeking to be a peacemaker insofar as it depends on you. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against them, forgive them. And then your heavenly Father will forgive you. It's, it's as if he's saying, God's forgiveness of all that you've done is somehow contingent upon the heart that you have that you will forgive others who have done wrong unto you. Jesus isn't suggesting that forgiveness is easy. Anybody that's had to forgive somebody knows it's painful. Anybody that has had to forgive somebody knows it's not linear. It's more like a spiral or it's more like you know, sine wave kind of troughs and peaks and valleys and all that stuff. Everybody knows it's painful. Everybody knows it's wrestling. Everybody knows that on the day that you thought you had, then it's something else happens and you realize, oh, I got work to do. But forgiveness is at the central of what it, center of what it means to follow him. That it's almost necessary. Wendell Berry, the, the, the horticulturalist, the farmer, the rancher, the poet, the writer, the novelist, he says this, if two neighbors know that they may seriously disagree, but that either of them, given even a small change of circumstances, may desperately need the other, should they not keep between them a sort of prepaid forgiveness? They ought to keep it ready to hand like a fire extinguisher. Forgiveness is called from us because we will probably need it and because it speaks to who you are in him. And for some of you in this room, you may think, I will never be able to do that. And if you told me your story, I would hear you, and I would probably think, I'm not sure I could do that either. It all feels very impossible. What hope do we have that we could ever set aside what is so important to us that needs to be pushed to the margins? Whatever could we ever do to find the strength not to get in the way of somebody coming to faith? What, do we, what can we ever feel compelled by in order both to ask what is impossible but also to forgive what feels just as impossible? What compels us? Jesus pronounces a curse on a fig tree and then he essentially enacts a curse upon the temple because that's all prelude to what's going to happen several days later when he is made a curse on a tree and in so doing becomes the new temple the new locus focus of God's presence among those who have come to him in humility the curse is placed upon him so that Paul may confidently say to anybody who trusts in him there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus hallelujah that's the gospel what he curses, he then takes upon himself for you and for me that we might be his, that we might come to Jesus and that we might come to the Father with courage, without apprehension. That's what he's done for us. And it's the only thing that will compel us. Look, if you wake up someday in the OR, you don't know where you are, um, and you look over to your side, and there's your mom on the gurney next to you, and, and you are told in that moment, we're about to put her under, and then cut her open, 
and then take something out of her that she was born with, that she has used for a very long time, but which she can still sacrifice for you, and we're going to put it in you so that you'll survive. You may be groggy, but there are two things that you can be confident of. One, you're in a desperate need. And two, she really loves you. Now press it a little further and more in the center of where this text is. If you're Charles Darnay at the end of A Tale of Two Cities and you're about to be hung as an enemy of the state and then Sidney Carton shows up who's lived an awful life but who looks just like you and says, I'll take your place and who will die for you, you already knew your situation was desperate. But in that moment, you know that Sidney Carton is living for something out of love for you and out of love for something that is greater. Friends, that's the gospel. The curse that was fitting for you, he takes upon himself. And somehow, somehow, by his spirit, that acts as the only sufficient compulsion to even consider worshiping the Father as he is worthy of. It becomes the only sufficient compulsion to ever ask for the impossible and to even forgive what feels impossible only then by him. Friends, it's Lent. Where are you in need of a course correction in which you found that you are now taking on water? What different sets of ways in which you give your attention so that you might recover something that you know you've lost? What is that? Where has your life been built upon a foundation that you know will not stand up in the storm? I'm inviting myself. I'm inviting you to a season of reflection upon those questions. And I think if we believe ourselves as a life, as a house of worship, a house established by the one who let a curse fall upon him, something may shift. And for that I will now pray. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, what's next? I don't know. But if you have told us that our, our house doesn't find its rest until it finds its rest in you, until it finds its foundation in your worship, then I ask that you would show us one small step this week in which we believe that and in which we give our attention to it. We ask that by your spirit you might remind us that we are each uniquely and individually yours. And for those who still wonder whether there is such thing as forgiveness, I pray that they would find it in you and place their faith in you. Thank you for this word. Help us to hold to it. Help us to believe when we can't. And to remember that we belong to you because of what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.